Hey everyone, welcome to JCB Art Studios Season 4. My name is Joanna. I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And before I introduce our new our author on today's podcast, we woke up to snow. Yes, in my little area of the coast where it's supposed to be the mildest, mildest of all of Canada. We woke up to snow. I think there's an inch. That's how mild we are in our area of the world. So um, it was pleasant and it's starting to melt, which is fine with me. All right. Today I have Zachary Hagen with me and we are going to talk about book three of his Eternal Chronicles series. Now, Zachary is currently living in Mississippi. He is a fantasy author and editor and he lives with there with his wife, Claudia, and their dog, Flynn. When Zachary isn't busy writing his next book or working with an editing client, you can often find him walking around his neighborhood or hiking. I tell you, the walks is, walking is when I get my best story ideas. <laughs> okay. So from a young age, Zachary was enthralled with the world of story. From the stories his parents read to him, from his blue bedtime storybooks to the first two series that he read, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I remember that one. And a series of unfortunate events. Zachary's tastes and continued to develop throughout his years of reading. Uh, the influences for his first series, the his first series, The Eternal Chronicles include Christopher Pallini, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, just to name a few. Zachary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It is a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Now, I have to ask, I have two dogs myself, and I've just bribed them in the other room, gave them lots of treats, so it's very quiet here. <laughs> so what type of dog is Flynn? Flynn is a yellow Labrador retriever. Ah, oh, uh, those animals, our animals, I tell you, they're precious, absolutely precious. They are. He is a giant spoiled goofball, but we love him. Yes. Yeah. So can you give the listeners an idea of what the Eternal Chronicles series is about. All right. Do you want the super technical thematic answer or do you want the elevator pitch? Whatever you feel comfortable given telling us. <laughs> so the Eternal Chronicles follows the journey of Eliar Barbadania and how he goes from losing his brother to rescuing him to finding out that all of his struggles and everything that has happened in the world has a much bigger magical destiny behind it than what he originally thought. Okay. 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 So now Eternity's Refuge is book three in that series. And mm -hmm. what, what, what's <clears throat> happening and happening in there? Yeah. So readers of the first two would have seen, them find Eternity's Well and drink from it. They would have seen them go to Nox Terra, the other side of their world. It's a flat world with two sides on it and restore light there and come back. And now the villain of the story, Tariq, 
has completely taken over the world, at least the one side of it, Lux Terra. And there is a small but growing following of Michael. He was the wise professor, sort of the Gandalf figure in the first book, um, if you will. And he's a savior of the world. He restored the magic that was dying in Lux Terra. And now Tariq is still trying to find a way to end his legacy and to kick him and the great spirit out of Lux Terra. And Eternity's refuge is the underground that follows Michael and is trying to keep Tariq from winning. Oh, wow. Okay. 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 So what was the initial what if or spark that made you just decide to write book one, Eternity's Will? Um, And at that time, did did you know when you started that you were going to write a series? Yeah. So the initial what if, um, and I haven't talked about it a lot, actually. I recently decided I should just really be completely marketing to my niche, which I thought was just the entire fantasy genre, but Eternal Chronicles have a very specific religious bent to them. Okay. Um, And so the initial what if was what if I told the story of Jesus' ministry on earth through the eyes of his disciples and set it in a fantasy world? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That's, that is cool. That, that's, that's quite a task too. Okay. <laughs> it, is. it takes a lot of different stories. Um, and people who know the gospels and know them well, will see um, the prodigal son in it. They'll see the feeding of the 5,000. Um, they'll see a f- quite a few of Jesus miracles um, exhibited by Michael um, throughout their journey to find the well of eternity. And they'll especially see it in in the ending, in the last three or four chapters of the book. It makes quite an impact. Um, I had readers tell me that they cried reading it, which if you're familiar with Jesus' story, you probably know why, and it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I mean, if you know that it's based on his life, um, then it's just kind of finding out how and experiencing the journey with a new set of characters. Okay. Okay. And as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, talking about your series, I was thinking it must have been quite the journey to write these novels for Mm -hmm. yourself too, as the author. Oh, absolutely. Um, When I wrote the first book, I actually started it um, in college and I left it alone for a little while. Yeah. And I got back to it in 2021 um, after losing a very dear friend. And there was a lot of grief and finishing the book under that was actually, I think, the best thing for the book because it took it from this, well, what if I tell the story this way to I need to spend time with the person that has the answers to how I'm feeling. And so there's a lot of conversation and soul searching that happens on the pages that 
um, was really healing for me to write and gave me the, the motivation and the desire to turn this into a bigger series. So instead of just stopping at um, Jesus' resurrection, I am now taking it in the five-book arc oh, cool. <laughs> to the second coming. Oh, cool. Well, I know and I'm getting a little off topic before we get to our next question, but I, when I originally wrote The Unraveling, it was about 20 years ago. And it was after my mom had passed that, you know, I thought, just one day, I thought, I'm going to get that manuscript out. And there are a few scenes in there, which I remember. See, there's a scene with Jade, my heroine, where she has lost her mother. And for me personally, I remember I had a dream. I remember the day after my, oh, sorry, I don't, I'm going, oh, I'm going off. I'm, I'm just going to, I've got to go off. I'm going to go keep <laughs> saying it. So I remember the day after my mom had passed, I had a dream that night. And she had basically, it was, it was like she was saying things were, were going to be okay. And I woke up and I remember waking up from that dream and just feeling crushed because I knew it was a dream, right? My, my mom was gone and it was just a dream, you know? And uh, I wrote that in the book and it, it's, it's interesting because I remember when I wrote it in there, like you said, just like the emotion coming over you, right? But uh, yeah, okay. Now, just kind of, thank you for that tangent. Okay. <laughs> so, continuing on with your series, and now making it, you're saying a five-book arc. Okay. Mm -hmm. We are currently watching Sandman on Netflix, written by Neil Gaiman. And my husband is noticing the biblical references. Okay, he was an altar boy. We're we're both raised Catholic. He was an altar boy up to like age 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And um he has some funny stories about being an altar boy, which I will save for another day. Okay. <laughs> so like he, he was saying to me, like even the names of some of the characters, and he and he's more like he says, you know, they've named this character this. And I'm, and I was never an altar boy or an altar girl, and so it doesn't have as much meaning to me. And he'll explain it to me, right? The meaning of the name. Now, the Bible, Moses parting the Red Sea, Cain and Abel, and even if you were looking at the Bible from a non-faith point of view, it provides drama and such story mm -hmm. material. What do you think? What 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 do you think about all that? I think that the Bible, even if you are looking at it from a non-faith perspective, yeah. is one of the most incredible books ever written. Okay. I mean, you can put aside the moral implications of reading it and living by its virtues. And there, like you said, I mean, Moses Party of the Red Sea. I mean, there are there have been multi- million dollar movies one the most expensive movie ever made up to a certain year i think it was in 2010 that the record was broken but up until i think it's 2010 and someone could fact check me on yeah. this 
was the Ten Commandments. Yeah. There's the drama in Egypt between Moses and the love interest there. And I mean, obviously some of this was extra biblical, but it set a really nice setting and stage for an incredible story from moving beyond slavery into freedom and what that meant for the Israelites. And there's just so much that you can draw from that. Um, Particularly, um, I think that all of us want a hero, right? And I think there are times when all of us feel incredibly alone. And so, especially looking at the story of Jesus, here's this person that is completely selfless, pure altruism. And he comes from heavenly paradise down to first century Middle East, which was not that, Yeah. <laughs> to sacrifice himself. And it's a love story. It's a drama. It's incredibly, the, the Bible's incredibly violent. I yeah. mean, there are things that we don't necessarily like to talk about in church, but it's a bloody book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the history. If you believe the Bible is true, um, you believe that it's the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's going to get messy. There are some really horrible things in there. And yet it is an incredible drama that I would put on par and above something like Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can read it as a fantasy book. You can read it as a sci-fi book. I mean, looking into Genesis, there's an angel guarding the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve don't go back in and eat from the Tree of Life and live forever. Um, And he's carrying, the angel's carrying a flaming sword. Well, recently people have been trying to actually invent lightsabers and it looks like a sword of fire. (laughs) I mean, that could literally be what we're looking at. I mean, there there are so many... implications for storytellers you can write um the more i've done it the more i found that it's easier to write um bible stories as either fantasy or even science fiction yeah um, which my books are kind of a combination of the two um it, it blends itself really well because it's such a fantastical story by itself yeah so it, there's a lot of story in there and i think that a lot of people don't necessarily read it for that. And so I think bringing those stories into a literary view where there's characters and um, the drama's forefront and the language isn't translated from three different perspectives um, helps to kind of highlight some of that and make it more personal. That's a great answer. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's a great answer. Okay. Now, with your story, let's delve into some of these characters. There is Elior, um, but he also has a group of friends, um, mm-hmm. Nix, Opal, Nereza, and I see them as being collectively the protagonists. Is is that am I anywhere close to that? Or I mean, there there's a certain there's a certain truth to that. I think that it's very hard for a any story to truly have multiple protagonists, but they are kind of collectively the protagonist. Elior is sort of the main, main character. Yeah. But Opal, Nereza, and Nyx um, 
are definitely not secondary characters. No. They are so pivotal to yeah. what goes on. And Elior needs them, I think, more than he often realizes because he's so focused for a lot of the time on his brother and his kind of nuclear family and preserve trying to preserve that, that he doesn't necessarily realize what he's found in his friends is a different kind of family. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now we're going to talk a little more about these characters and then we're going to, to go to, you know, the scenes and, and your book now, ah, Tariq. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Okay. He is a Jin. Have mm -hmm. I said? Okay. Okay. So can you explain what a Jin is? And I'm going to be absolutely honest. The first time I had learned of a Jin was on an episode of Supernatural. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I pulled from a lot of different um cultural references when I was designing the the world and the different races and things like that. And I had not seen a single fantasy author include Jin in their races unless it was a, like a kid's book or an Aladdin retelling. Um, and so Jin are what we would normally call genie. Okay. Um, but it's it's sort of an older word. So the etymology of genie goes back to um, I believe it's Arabic or a related language. And they, in Muslim um, cosmology and um, their ideas of the origin of the world, Satan wasn't a fallen angel, but rather a created being called a jinn. Okay. And he was, I believe, called Ifrit. Um and jinn are beings made of pure fire, which will give you a clue about their personality yeah. and how they operate things. And so you know, fire is sort of this mysterious kind of thing. And all of the all of the races in the books are made of a different element, like one of the four elements or the remnants of it. So humans are made of the remnants of all of the other um races more people of course are made of water fairies are made of air and um elves are made of earth and plants so um the the jinn were especially interesting to write because of course fire is different than anything else that's natural and so they're more volatile they wield magic um i sort of took the idea of what jinn were in Muslim mythology and um, study and adapted it to what it would be like if they were sort of the sort of cornerstone of what the magic system in the world was based off of. Okay. Okay. And as you're talking, it's not a tangent, it's kind of a tangent, but you have me wondering because I'm doing research for my fourth book. And I was curious about how you where your research, like your what does your research in, entail? Because you were also mentioning, you know, other faiths. So that's the how, what does your research involve? 
Yeah. So it, it depends on the book. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of research in world building because I wanted to draw from some Greek mythology. I wanted to draw from some Muslim stuff. Of course, the core of the story is very Christian. Yeah. Um, although hopefully not in a way that comes across as preachy. I haven't heard from anyone that it's preachy no. and considering no. that a victory because the story no. should be first. No, it's not. I, I was reading it. It is not preachy at all. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Because I want anyone to be able to enjoy it, even if they're not reading it for yeah. the that I wrote it. Um, yeah. But so it. I think the biggest thing is that I looked at different cultures because I didn't want this to be another um, white guy writes a Western fantasy. Not that I have a problem with any of those, but um, my own heritage is multicultural. My dad is white. My mom is Cuban. I have my grandfather was born in Syria. One of I have family from Nor- Norway. And yet we also have family that has been here since the Mayflower. And so I have all of these different stories and I wanted to represent a lot of different perspectives in the book as well. So I think that the research, I looked into different fairy tales and how people saw different things like fairies and elves. Yeah. Um, I actually have an article on my website about researching for writing um, so, I mean, that's a good resource for anyone that wants it, that is aspiring to write or no, wants to know how to do research for fantasy. I think that that's often neglected because it's like, oh, we're fantasy authors or we're sci-fi authors. So we should just be able to write from our minds, but it really doesn't work like that, particularly if you're trying to represent, um, other cultures, like if you're completely making everything up by all means, but especially if you want things to be believable, especially when you're working with a magic system, it kind of has to be consistent and make sense. So even if your research is cataloging your own thoughts and organizing them so that they're consistent, that's a form of research too. So it totally depends on what kind of book you're writing. The main thing is to create something consistent. And sometimes that means using outside sources to create a fuller picture. Well, like I said, I was reading it, and A, I didn't think it was preachy. And, to, you know, it shows your research because I felt there was a definite foundation mm-hmm. to where your stories take place. Like there was a, like it, 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 I felt grounded reading it. You know, it, it, does that make sense? You know what I'm, I, yeah, right. As a writer and I, I can't express myself vocally. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, okay. Sometimes it works better one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to talk about the dark circle. Last question with respect to, then we'll go characters and then we'll go on to scenes. What is the dark circle? So the dark circle um, came from a couple different places. One, um, there was a time in my life, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I got really into conspiracy theories. That's okay. Um, I mean, the thing is sometimes they come out as there are elements of truth in them. So I always like to listen to them anyway, just in case they turn out to be true six months later. Um, (laughs) they don't always, some of them are just crazy. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the one where birds aren't real. Oh no, I haven't heard that. Yeah. So there's a conspiracy theory in the United States where birds aren't real and they're just, um, 
robots? (laughs) Yeah, they're government surveillance robots and their eyes are cameras. And I'm like, you know, there are better ways for the government to spy on you if they really want to. Yeah, Facebook. (laughs) Facebook, your Alexa, cell phones. I mean, really, they're not going to use birth. Yeah. Things. And so the dark circle are world leaders that come together and they're conspiring to completely revamp society. And so they go from individual countries to a united nation, one country um, in the second book. And it was also based on this idea that um, there's, there's a verse, I believe it's in Ephesians, but I'm not hundred percent sure off the top of my head where it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And that's what the dark circle is. Okay. It is the dark force. Um, it's headed by Tariq, but under him, he has Minerva, um, a mermaid, a Loki, an elf, Steelwort, a dwarf, and... Oh, who did I miss? Who did I miss? I missed Lokina. Ah, Swiftwing, a fairy. So all of the major races of Luxterra are represented and they started working together. I would love to do a villain origin story at some point, Um, but that sort of depends on how well the five book arc works out first. Yeah. and. There's a lot of different motivation in there. Of course, Tariq's goals are kind of hidden because he's very representative of Satan. And so there's a lot of deception going on there, but they're kind of convinced that they're doing the right thing until they're not, but that comes later. Yeah. Okay. And just to give our listeners a heads up, just when we were chuckling over conspiracy theories my internet cut out a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so we just so if you listen to this um it's that when you started with the dark circle it it just started to kick in with circle so i i yeah you may see me turn off my video zachary if i if i get that message popping up again okay okay so your scenes okay Every good author wants the reader to be in the scene, to be there, um, whether you're writing mystery, romance, fantasy, okay? Um, Your scenes are visual. And the one in particular, which I enjoyed reading about, was when they board the boat and go to the Black Sap Island, which I said to you earlier, I think that is a great name. And they cruise into a cave. And Marvin, your character, calls out into the darkness that he comes with friends. The cave is illuminated with lights and it's packed with people. And it was a very, I, I can see it as I'm, as I'm describing it here. So I was wondering, do you feel that fantasy authors paint a more vivid landscape. Um, Do you feel like it's a prerequisite for that genre? I think that they do. And I think it's out of necessity. Okay. Um, 
because particularly with fantasy, you are, you're not relying on what a future world could look like. You're not describing something in our current world. And so you have to go into this kind of excruciating detail. I think it would be for some writers, um, because you're describing a world that doesn't really exist. And so you have to recreate a world of your own imagination in someone else's mind. And that means creating visual scenes and visceral um, ideas that put a reader in the middle of something that they've never seen before. Good answer. Yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, exactly. Okay. So another scene, and I I really like this. I could just feel Gabrielle's just, so Gabrielle, your character, she Mm -hmm. just wants a cup of tea. I think we've all there. We've all been there. We just want our cup of tea, our our cup of coffee. And she's visited by Ginny. And Gabrielle receives news that a gin has shown up at the market asking questions. And you write, the happy normalcy that had seemed so present with the sun rays streaming in was gone. The golden tendrils had lost their color and a pallor of grayness had settled over them. I liked how you've expressed the foreboding and uh, like, talk to me, this scene and using landscapes, do you like using nature to express like a darkness, uh, like something good is not going to happen? I do. I think that, that one of the biggest things that people can relate to in a fantasy world, unless you are completely inventing an entirely new landscape yeah, with different plants and different physics and all that. The thing that I think does tie in well is our perception of nature. Yeah. And I think everyone has had that moment where they have been fine one moment and then they get horrible news or they find something out and they're afraid And it's like all the color just goes out of the room. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't actually, but it feels like there's a switch. It was warm and it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. And I started, even while I was asking you that, I started wondering, do authors do that as much anymore? I'm just, I'm thinking about the books I've read, you know, because I think it's a really it's really cool. It just when you just like you said, you bring the nature in, and all of a sudden, what may have been, you know, like today we have this beautiful sunshine, mm-hmm. but um, you know, and, and you think of it, like we had snow, and it was gray and it was white and it looked pretty on the trees, um, but now that the sunshine comes out, it totally lifts your spirits. So yeah, I was just yeah, okay, okay. So now Opal. Your character, Opal, she has visions. Mm -hmm. And I always like the little gems writers weave into their stories, you know, and it's it's like here, the great spirit blessed them all with the new moon and a cloudy night. And can you tell our listeners about Opal and her visions and the great spirit? So... 
opal. Oh, this is such a big question, but I <laughs> we've got time. <laughs> opal started her journey as the heir apparent to Nanonese, the dwarf kingdom's throne. Yeah. And she was ousted. And she had this huge question of, well, if I'm not going to be queen, what's my purpose? And she's found that in this book, but she started to approach that in the previous one. And it's as a seer or what we might call a prophetess. Okay. So there's this big divide between the great spirit, the deity that created the world and is trying to save it from Tariq and the rest of the world, because people don't necessarily make religion an important part of their lives. There's a dwindling number of priests. There's all of these different things that are kind of in the way because it's it's like our modern world. People are busy. They're kind of ignoring this, but it's kind of coming to a head in this series because the opposing sides of the coin are fighting. Yeah. And so it's, am I with Tariq or am I with the great spirit? And since Tariq is in the world and he can speak for himself, but he's a liar, the great spirit needs Opal to be the one to speak for him, to be sort of this smaller light pointing towards the greater light of a guiding force for um, for Elior and his friends. She's sort of the voice of reason. Mm-hmm. When everyone else is confused and scared and lost, she has this connection that no one else has to Michael and the great spirit to be able to point them in the right direction. Okay. Okay. Again, another good answer. Um, I'm learning, I'm learning a lot here. Now, Neander Novak. Oh, what he goes through. Okay. (laughs) So when I read about him, I'm thinking of themes of forgiveness and redemption were were you were those themes that came to mind when you started with neander absolutely i mean he goes through such a big change i mean even his name literally means new i searched for names that meant new or renewal and so his experience in the refuge is in eternity's refuge in both the organization and the book yeah um is about redemption it's about amending for the wrong that he knows he's done in his past life um or i guess in his life in the past he's not reincarnated um but i guess in a sense he is because he he's sort of reborn as another person um but he still has that past to make up for. Yeah. Thing that's happened has still happened. And he has such an intense desire to make better choices and atone for what has come before. Okay. Okay. And I was going to ask you, but now that you've mentioned it, I was thinking these names for your characters. I thought, no, I'm not going to ask them. But where do you get, how do you come up with the names of these characters? Because now that you've mentioned it, <laughs> what Neander means, so how how do you come up with them? Do you search for the meanings or, yeah? 
For some of them. Um, so some of the races have different themes. Okay. So um, like dwarves, most of them are named after either metals or precious gems or types of stones. Oh, okay. So they're all earthen names because yeah. in traditional lore, dwarves are miners or they are crafters of some kind. So I wanted to build that heritage of where they came from in. I'm less picky with human names because there's so many varied types of people. And um, I mean, I don't necessarily put it on the page, but there are characters that I think of as Asian, characters that I think of as Black, characters that I think of as white, and some that are mixed. Um, I don't necessarily put that in because I want people to kind of put their own faces on them. Yeah. but I do have a particular system for naming characters of the royal family in the okay. book. So Elior and his brother, both of their names start with E and L. No. And the female members of the royal family, their names start with E and M. And part of that was a desire for kind of the names to match so that lineage would be traceable. Um but also because I needed Elior in particular to tie in with um, Hebrew sort of names because their last name, their surname, he and his brothers um, is Bar Vidanya. And so that's sort of a, a combination between the Hebrew Bar meaning sun and then Vida means life. Vidanya, the, the human nature, the human nation in the books is um, named for the Spanish word life. Okay. Okay. A lot of symbolism in the names. Okay. Well, because what I never knew, I'm currently a student at the writer's studio through um, Simon Fraser University. Mm -hmm. And there are quite a few fantasy authors in the writer studio i th- i think i'm the only i guess you could say mystery thriller author and what i learned is there's actually some sort of a fantasy name generator that <laughs> i never knew that you know so that's when you were talking about neander and the meaning behind his name i thought okay that's Oh, I'm definitely going to ask you. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I So I don't really use the generator because I think that for people that really want to know about someone, yeah. that I, I want them to be able to look to their name to figure that out. So, I mean, you might be able to figure out like some heritage, like one of the characters probably has a name that if you did a little research on it, you could probably figure out that I was thinking of maybe an Egyptian or North African yeah. person when I wrote them. And um, some like Nyx is a, is literally a word for water spirit. Oh, nice. Um, so it fits very well with the merman name. Yeah. Um, Loki, the um, elven member of the dark circle. Um of course, people know Loki from Marvel, yeah. but it is a Norse name. And so I, I actually based my elves less on the Tolkien version of elves and more on the Norse mythology version of elves. Okay. There's a little bit of both in there, but I used 
nature names and Norse names for the elves. Okay. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm this is brand new book I'm working on. So I always say I'm in that honeymoon stage where before you do rewrites and you're just getting the ideas <laughs> down, right? Yeah. And I have a character because it deals with international law. He's from Sri Lanka. So it was so satisfying for me to look up male Sri Lankan names mm-hmm. and seeing the names that come up and and picking one, you know, instead of yeah. having something generate to you a bunch of names. Because I'm sure you do. I know I do. Once you pick that character's name, that it's personal. You, I think that's when you get that start getting that personal connection to that character, and that character starts to develop, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, on your website, you write that eternity's refuge. This is the tough question. I thought I'm going to save it to the last here. Eternity's refuge is the third book in the Eternal Chronicles series, and it wrecked me to finish it. This was the most emotional write for me in this series so far, and I'm so excited for everyone to get to read it later this year. Talk to me about that statement, okay? What what did you experience? So this is the third book, right? Yeah. Um, and I I like using the three act structure. Okay. Um, and so the. This is sort of the midpoint of the entire series. From here, it's falling action towards the end. We've got our little sort of um, bridge of the second act to the last little bit with the fourth book that I'm writing. But then it's it's the end. The The midpoint of a story is arguably the most important part because this is where there's truly no going back to the way it was before. Okay. And so things are so different after the third book. And for that to be true, there were some hard scenes to write that I don't necessarily want to, to get away specifically because it's, that's a personal experience for each reader. Yeah. Um, Especially if you've read the first two books, but um, it took me the longest to write because I knew the scenes that had to be in it knowing where the last book ends because I know exactly what the last few scenes of the last book are going to be I don't have the exact words in my my mind yet but I know what it's going to look like and so knowing the emotional payoff that I wanted for the readers in that scene at the end it required me to do things that kind of hurt me yeah. Book. Yeah. Um, in Eternity's Refuge. And so it's, I think, readers, when you read an emotionally difficult story, trust me, yeah. it's harder for the author. Exactly. The author goes through every one of those emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was one particular chapter, and it's near the end um, that I knew was coming. And it took, and I procrastinated. Oh. This one took me um, about four or five months to write. It usually takes me about three. Oh, wow. 
Wow. It almost doubled my time in writing it because I knew what was coming and I didn't want to write it, but I, I knew that I had to. Yeah. So, well, that, yeah. Well, that's, I was just talking with my critique partner and it's the ending of book three, which is now with my editor. And I told her, I have rewritten this ending three, four times. And I just, I don't want to go for the cliche, you know, but what is it with the third books? Cause yeah, I'm just thinking about mine now. There's, there's going to, there's a change that happens. And I just, and I'm still, when I was talking to her, I said, you know what? I think I'm rewriting it again. <laughs> Cause I just, I don't want a cliche with what happens. It involves, I'll just say it involves a ring. Okay. And I just don't want the cliche. I want the emotion, you know, and I don't want the happy ever after Cinderella story, but I want the emotion and I want that this journey hasn't stopped for these characters yet. Right. It's creating that authenticity and getting the ending that you want without making it feel like every other ending like it. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so Zachary, it, I was going to ask you what's next, but I think you have a, a number, a few more books under your belt with this series. Yeah, I am currently working on Eternity's Edge, which will be the fourth book. Um, and my publicist has the dates. Both of the last two books are going to be coming out this next year. Oh, wow. So if people want to wait and buy them, I, I would love for them to buy them now, but um all five books will be out in time for Christmas next year. Oh, great. Yeah. You'll be able to get all of them all at once. Awesome. Awesome. Um, but yeah, Eternity's End will be the last in the main series. Later, I might come back and do some, some side stories or some prequels. But for now, five is going to be it. And I'll be moving on to other projects. Cool. Cool. So... Where can people find you if you like if you could give me your website? Yeah, so ZacharyHaganWrites.com is the website, and there are links to pretty much all of my socials. Okay. Um there, except I just made a Twitter. It's with the same Zachary Hagan underscore writes. Um or actually I think on Twitter it's Zach Hagan writes because they didn't like all of the characters. It wanted a shorter username, so I had to edit it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, ba, 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 ba. So, yeah, Zach Hagen writes no underscore for Twitter. That's the only one that's not linked yet because I just made that one this week. Okay. Great. Great. Well, Zachary, this has been very interesting. Very interesting. And your books, what I like is that they're different. And just hearing you dis and discussing them with them, with you, just like I said, that foundation, when we were even talking about scenes, there's such a, a foundation to these novels. So I really appreciate you talking with me. Well, I appreciate uh, the privilege of being able to talk with you about it. You had great questions. I'd love being able to answer them. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay, Zachary. We'll see you later. See ya.